I feel like I especially need the ring of Christmas this year. And I wonder if I'm not alone in this. I know there's a lot about Christmas I don't need more of. I don't need more decorating. I don't need more shopping. I don't need more traffic. I definitely don't need more food. I've done a lot of that, thank goodness for robes. Uh, I don't feel like I need more events to go to during this particular season of time. And if I hear in that Muzak form one more time, here comes Santa Claus, here comes Santa Claus, I'm going to go crazy. What I need is the ring of the deep meaning of Christmas. And more this year, perhaps, than ever before for a reason I want to talk about with you tonight. And, and I'm guessing that I'm not alone in this. And that for the same reason, you might find the message of Christmas especially meaningful today. It's really nice to hear from angels. To be reminded of all of the peace and mercy and joy that overflows their heart. But to be perfectly honest, it's getting harder and harder to find the angel channel anymore. Maybe you have noticed that. So many of the voices that we have heard from on high are filled with anything but joyous sounds these days. They're not doing a lot of singing about hopeful things. Instead, we've got the doom channel over here and the gloom channel over there. We've got the impeachment show and the murder news and the botched surgery program, though I confess I like to watch that one, and they, the so-called stupid, those other people are stupid or evil uh, blog sites and websites. How in the world do you approach feeling good about Christmas when you wake up to the anti-angel choir singing, Good morning, America, I bring you bad tidings that shall be upsetting to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city you live in more chaos, conflict, and corruption than you can possibly stand. How is a person to keep watch over their flock at night, much less get to sleep yourself, when there's this host of voices around you each and every evening we bring you decay and darkness, we bring you despair and devils, we bring you death and dying, there's no hope at all. It may just be me, but I don't know if any others of you have noticed how much our culture today seems stuck on this hopeless playlist. Whether the crisis is being blamed on the president or on the speaker of the house, on the Democrats or the Republicans, on China or Russia, on Google or Amazon, the narrative remains the same. It's all crisis. It's all the time. And even the story of Christmas can come to sound like that. We can have been whipped up so much that we even read the narrative of Christmas in those terms. Caesar only wants your taxes. King Herod is out to get you. The innkeeper has no room for you. Evil powers are completely wrecking this world and must be stopped. It's the hopeless channel almost everywhere we turn. Maybe it's time. Maybe we ought to start to listen to some better angels. When we meet Mary and Joseph in Luke chapter 2, they are on their way from their home in Nazareth down south to the village of Bethlehem. 
Mary is a teenager. Joseph is probably a couple of years older than she. And neither of them likely wants to be making this arduous trip. Why? Well, because it's a long way between Nazareth and Bethlehem. It is a day before trains, planes, and automobiles. And if you are a peasant, you're going to be making this trip on foot. I Google mapped it myself this week. And I discovered that were you to try and make that walk yourself, it would take you somewhere between 33 and 34 hours of walking. And you better be in very good shape because the last 15 miles of the journey are pretty much uphill. And Mary is about nine months pregnant. So why do they go? Why do they make this journey? Well, the scriptures tell us that they are really just two ordinary people caught up in an extraordinarily huge and powerful system in their day. The emperor Caesar Augustus is building palaces and public work projects all over his empire. And this takes money. To get the money that he needs for these projects, he needs to bring in more taxes. And to max the tax, he needs a census of his subjects to know how many people he can tax. To get the census, he orders the governors in each one of his provinces to register everybody. And little Mary and her husband-to-be, Joseph, are caught up in this massive system and undoubtedly feeling severely stressed by it. And that is relevant. Because in a similar fashion, I think so are you and I. When you leave the Angel Channel tonight and you go back to listening tomorrow to the voices proclaiming gloom and doom and enemies and crises and problems everywhere, please try to remember something you heard here tonight. You also are caught up in a massive system that may not always be about giving you priority, that may not always be about giving you an accurate picture of reality. Vast fundraising and vote-generating machines depend on making you listen to and sing along to the chorus of upset and outrage that you'll be switching over to in the next days. Media empires need to keep stoking your anxiety and your anger in order to build the ratings that lead to the advertiser revenues that keep the businesses booming and their lifestyles flourishing. And these parties and these organizations and these businesses are no more evil than Caesar or the governor Quirinius or the innkeeper in the Christmas story. Some of these entities are actually trying in their own way to make this world a better place. But put their panic playlists in perspective. Because Christmas tells us that there is a greater power at work in this world than can sometimes be seen. There's a greater power at work for good. And in Bethlehem, long ago, he was just beginning to reveal his way and his glory. And Joseph had a chance to behold him. 
I guess we'd have to admit that some of what the hopeless channels are broadcasting is, is true. I mean, there's, there are pain, there's, there are problems, there's injustice in this world, and these things have to be taken seriously. There's a lot of struggle in this world because sin exists. Sin separates us from God, it separates us from each other, it separates us even from our own best selves. It makes us selfish or self-righteous and usually both. I know that personally because of how much I actually enjoy getting caught up in all of the outrage choruses towards all of those bad people and bad parties and bad positions and bad policies and bad parking jobs that I see as I go about my life. I know how dark sin is because of how regularly I seem to delight in finding faults in my family and my co-workers while remaining strangely blind to my own failings and inconsistencies. And I think that if this sin sickness could be healed, if it could be addressed even significantly in just the people that are attending Christmas Eve services tonight, I think we might begin to see some powerful changes sweeping across our land. I think that if the sin issue got personally addressed, we would take much better care of one another and of the creation than we are today. We would use our speech and amazing power to build people up, to unlock their potential instead of casting suspicion on everybody for anything they say or do. We would take more responsibility for our own lives and spend less time envying or blaming others. We would forgive other people more easily. We would build bridges more often toward people from whom we are now estranged. We would see that despite all of the differences of, of culture or of color or of country, that we are still part of one amazing human family. And if the human sin problem could somehow be addressed, if the orientation of the human heart could be altered in a significant way, we would start to use the extraordinary powers we have, the amazing possessions and capacity we have in a more gracious and generous way than we currently do. We would make capitalism work for even more people than perhaps it is today. We would make sure the structures of our remarkable society were protecting everybody. And if our sin were overcome, you and I would be far more able to discern wise public policies and more inclined to follow them ourselves. The voices of doom and of the gloom stations are going to tell us that the most important question of our time is who will win this current political struggle. This will be the voice heard on so many channels. That, of course, makes a difference who wins. But the far more crucial question of our time is where are we going to find someone who can deliver us from our sinful darkness, who can restore our moral vision, who can calm the storms that rage all around us because they begin within us? 
who can do that? Mary, did you know? I read an article this past week by a, a brilliant young commentator who I'd never heard of until I came across this piece. I'm surprised I didn't. Apparently many people have. He is an extraordinarily gifted musical composer by the name of Mohammed Farouz. And his operas and his symphonies have been, formed, been per performed at Carnegie Hall and at both Lincoln and the Kennedy Centers. And in this particular article, Farouz mused over his concern that people of his generation, and he's a young man, were losing hope. They were losing hope that this world could actually be changed for the good. He's concerned that they're giving in not only to the negativity that we've been talking about here tonight, but also to the kind of hopelessness that actually leads to extremism and violence. Listen to what Farouz says. Among my generation, cynicism is no longer a bad word. It's being celebrated now. And often it's mistaken for intelligence. But cynicism is not intelligence. At its worst, cynicism can be a dangerous, world-breaking kind of state of mind. We have to be willing, he writes, to open ourselves up and to believe in something bigger than ourselves in order to go somewhere. And even though we are the internet generation, writes Farouz, we've got to be willing to listen to and to be inspired by the learning of a thousand generations of humanity. That, he writes, takes intelligence, yes, but also trust, belief, and sometimes even faith. It takes faith to believe that this troubled world of ours can be changed for good because some are saying right now it's hopeless. It takes even more faith to believe that this change that is needed might begin with you and with me and what goes on in our hearts. And to that we might say, oh, that's impossible. But thousands of years ago, the Old Testament prophet Isaiah foretold a day when even the people who walked in darkness would see a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, he says, a light has dawned. And the message of Christmas is simply this. That day has come. In the person of Jesus, God has broken into the darkness of human sin and struggles. He's come with a life and a light that cannot be overcome. He is here in this place, in this room, within the sound of my voice, with you tonight to offer you hope and to make you a force of hope. And if you have not ever done so, if you have not perhaps for a very long time done so, ask him to forgive you and cleanse you and to send you forth again. Ask him to renew your character and your most important relationships. Ask him to touch you in some personal way tonight with the knowledge that he is with you in whatever you're going through right now.
ask God to fill all of us with his life afresh and his light afresh to be the change agents that are so needed in every home and school and place of occupation and public square of our time today. Sometimes we listen to the words of the Apostle John who tells us that the light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it and we misunderstand the image. I know for a lot of us, a verse like that conjures up a picture. Maybe it's a picture of a, a darkened room or hallway. And at the end of the hallway, there is this door. And underneath the door, a sliver of light. And this is the picture that we associate so often with this promise John makes. The big idea is that the world's all messed up. It's in a terrible state of darkness. But there's this little sliver of light. There's this little sliver of hope. Maybe if this changes... Maybe if we elect that person, maybe if this happens, that a little more hope will emerge. That isn't at all what the gospel writers meant when they shared that good news. The image that God had in his mind was that the coming of Jesus, Jesus, Lord, at thy birth, as we've just sung, fundamentally changed creation and history forever. No longer was it just a dark planet, desperate for a sliver of hope. Now Earth was a world that had been bathed in the glorious radiance of the living God and would perpetually now be shaped by that grace and truth. The early Christians burst forth into their world filled with an unquenchable kind of hope, absolutely believing that the light of Christ that they'd seen, I suppose, as the shepherds had, springing from that manger was now out there moving, changing the world everywhere. The light of Christmas and Easter radiated across the Roman Empire as the Christians went forth sharing the good news of Jesus. That light inspired so many movements of compassion and education and scientific inquiry and healthcare and justice and commerce that it is not a stretch to say that our very concept and experience of the word civilization derives from that light, was created by the light of the message of Jesus Christ. Ponder how many schools hospitals, universities, nonprofit organizations in this country alone exist today because of Christ's light. I went to one of them. Its motto was, looks at veritas, light and truth. Yale was born through the Christian vision. For all of the atrocious failings of individual Christians, we owe our system of government, the advance of civil rights, and the ever-reforming nature of the American spirit in no small part to the light that shone from that manger. Don't forget that. 
Don't forget that. Today, the light of Christ is still transforming individual lives and institutions and entire cultures around the world. And if you don't get out much, get out there in that wider world and see it. In Africa and Asia and South America and other portions of the global south, we are seeing the greatest explosion of Christian faith since the birth of the early church. And it's happening right now in the world today. And that faith is reshaping cultures. The ethics of Christ's kingdom are changing life for women and for children and for other vulnerable populations around the world as never before. I know we're always hearing news from the voices of our time that says it's just terrible out there. It's just terrible. But I want to invite us tonight to keep our perspective about this. You and I are also living through an era, even in this country, even in the countries we can see around us where Christ's concern for the poor has not now so inspired and infiltrated so many missionary efforts and non-governmental organizations and humanitarian works that the world is being changed before our very eyes. In the past 20 years alone, and some of you, I think, have been alive in the last 20 years, in the last 20 years alone, the number of kids dying from preventable diseases or women perishing in childbirth or human beings living in extreme poverty, in the last 20 years, those numbers have been cut in half. In half. In just the last seven years, cases of malaria have been reduced by 25%. I talked not long ago to the head of one of the world's leading humanitarian organizations, and he told me confidently that it is likely, likely that in the next 25 years, we will see the eradication of poverty in all but the most fragile states, like Somalia or the Sudan, for example. The eradication of severe poverty. For all I know that remains uncertain, that needs repair here in these United States, there are amazing beams of light shining on this country too. As Christian columnist Peter Weiner documented very extensively in the New York Times just this past month, whether we're talking about the number and rates of abortions, of teenage pregnancies and births, of teenage sexual activity or alcohol or illicit drug use, or the number of violent crimes and the divorce rate, we are seeing the actual news getting better over the past five years or more, and in some cases at a pace that once seemed unimaginable. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. I do not tell you all of this to suggest that there are still not many profoundly shadowed places in our society and our world. There is much work still to be done. And if you know anything about this church, then you know that we are committed to being a part of that work, as I pray every church is. But I mention all of this to you tonight to remind us 
that amidst one of the doomiest, gloomiest, most conflicted and cynical moments in American history, it is especially worth tuning in closely to the Christmas channel for a change. It's important to listen to the voices of Isaiah and angels and the shepherds and John because they tell us that God has sent someone to fix the human sin problem that is at the core of our struggles. That his light is still shining across this world today, changing this world with a light that darkness cannot overcome. Because Jesus, who is still very much in this world, is at work in our time. There is such good reason for hope. Maybe somebody ought to climb a mountain somewhere and proclaim this good news to a listening world. In the spirit of the conversation we've been holding tonight, permit me to just send you forth with one final uh, quotation. This one comes from a venerable pastor of an earlier time by the name of J. Barry Shepard, who in his book, A Child is Born, muses over what many of us will be doing on our Christmas Day. It would be easy, he writes, to criticize the waste, the trash, the sad attempt to buy affection in a splash of wild extravagance. And yet for all of that, this is a genuine time of family fun. A day when games are played together, books are read and puzzles puzzled. A time when a meal is eaten family style and smiles and kisses are in plentiful supply. A day when memories are brought forth, dusted off, and handed around. Perhaps we might find in moments such as these an echo of those tidings of great joy. I wonder, would the Christ child, if he sat beneath our sparkling tree, really condemn as crass and empty all he saw? Or just might he laugh and cheer and clap his sticky hands with glee to see his miracle take place again and life become abundant, shared in love. My translation to that is, don't let the doom and gloomers rob you of the joy of living as a child of the light. As you go forth into this world, even in the midst of these shadowed times, remember that the light has come and the darkness has not and will not overcome it. Thus may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of God's Holy Spirit be with you all the Christmas day, and until we meet again, and forevermore, amen.